there was a transmission of what his central teaching was, which was that no one can make you angry. You always choose anger, consciously or unconsciously. And that the path to liberation was to go towards that feeling of anger, of contraction, of victimhood, of the places where I feel most bound emotionally is the place where if I bring my awareness, I can find the deepest liberation. Your angst is your liberation. Go towards the pain, not away from the pain. That was the teaching. Welcome to Crazy Wisdom. I'm your host, Luke Antrop. Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. I am joined this week by Keith Martin Smith, Keith is an award-winning author, copywriter. He's a creative consultant and book coach. He's a longtime martial artist and meditator. Welcome to the show, Keith. Thank you. It's great to be here, Luke. Yeah, wonderful to have you. So, Keith, tell me, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Who's asking? Ah, uh, more. <laughs> we may need to back up. A moment. <laughs> <laughs> a little inside Zen joke there. <laughs> for, for, for the dear listeners. <laughs> so Keith just released a new book, which is just wonderful. It's called When the Buddha Needs Therapy. And this is yet another wonderful contribution from Keith, one of my favorite authors. Thank you. Yeah. And Keith and I share a bit of a lineage. I've always been in, in kind of classic Gen X fashion, been a little resistant to uh, join any order, religion, organization <laughs> formally. But if I had to claim one, it would be the Hollow Bones Order of Zen Buddhism and our beloved teacher, Junpo Dennis Kelly Roshi, who uh, passed away not so long ago and touched both, both of our lives pretty deeply. And Keith's been writing about Junpo and his, his work in this most recent book and in Heart Blown Open. So Keith, I'd love to just have a bit of a conversation about your journey in your practices, and uh, and then also, you know, maybe tell some stories about our our beloved Junpo. How's that sound? Sounds great. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, I was a Vajrayana student, so Tibetan Buddhism, and I started that practice in my earlier twenties, and uh, did it for about a decade. And I moved to Boulder in two thousand six, and in two thousand seven, I was at an event at uh, what then was called Boulder Integral, run by uh, Jeff Saltzman. We were there for like an integral leaders and thinkers kind of a conference thing. It was a relatively small group. At one point during the weekend, they put us into a, a quad. So it was me, my friend Jason, uh, the Zen teacher, Diane Mushu Hamilton, who I knew, and this like older, bald, white dude with the really blue eyes. And uh, we were told to introduce ourselves and to say why we were there and what integral meant to us. That was the, like, the, the cue for us to you know, break the ice. And the bald white guy went first. He said, well, they call me Junpo these days. I'm supposed to be some kind of Zen Roshi. But a couple years ago, I started fucking somebody in my order, a priest in my order. And I fucked up her marriage. I fucked up my marriage. And I almost destroyed the organization I'd spent a lifetime building. 
And so at 64 years of age, I'm back to doing this small self shit again. And I'm here to see if Integral can explain what the fuck happened to me. And I was like, what? You know, who talks like that? Uh, what Zen Roshi talks like that? And who opens up to three strangers with that level of savage ownership and honesty? Uh, I, I just was completely blown away and immediately, I, I didn't know much about Zen. I wasn't interested in Zen, but I was like, I don't know who this guy is, but I definitely need to get to know him better. Yeah. So this was your first encounter with him and you subsequently, you studied with him. You t tell me a little bit about how you got to know him a bit deeper and eventually writing a biographical on him. We had a really beautiful and deep relationship. We both had like sort of a raised in a Roman Catholic background. We had difficult childhoods, both of us, different ways. And it was just like, the more I got to know him, um, he really offered this combination of a deep spiritual wisdom and insight and really about, he, he really had a brilliant way of teaching and transmitting the awakening process. But he was also really far ahead of his time. You know, as a guy who was in his mid sixties in 2000, you know, five, six, seven, um, he was really adamant about teaching emotional integration and that the big problem with most Eastern spiritual traditions and Western spiritual traditions for that matter, was that they neglected to deal with psychological shadow and with unconscious processes, and they didn't have a very intelligent way of dealing with emotions, both unconscious and conscious. And so I was drawn to him because as a then, you know, 35 or so year old, give or take, um, I had a really deep spiritual practice and I'd had dozens and dozens and dozens of deep, deep spiritual awakening kenshos, you know, these are sort of awakening experiences. And I was, you know, lost in relationship. I was really overwhelmed by a lot of my emotions. Uh, I had a lot of issues with rage and with anger. And it was like there were two versions of me, the sort of guy that could be spiritual and then this sort of everyday me that was a, a bit of a hot mess. Hmm. And Junpo really helped to bring those two worlds together for me and, um, and just a really beautiful way through his teaching. And then that inspired me to... Uh, basically write his life story, which was the, the first book of his that I wrote called A Heart Blown Open, um, which just detailed his, his own crazy journey and how he came to be a Zen lineage holder in, in a traditional Rinzai Zen lineage, but then realized he needed to bring in all of this emotional integration work. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it's a wild, wild life story. Knowing him as a human, I think you captured just some of the most poignant moments. I mean, there's just so many vivid experiences he had that, that shaped who he was. And maybe we could just spend a moment telling the listeners a bit of these tales. I mean, he was, he grew up kind of in an abusive home and, and severely abusive. Yeah. Yeah. And found his way out of it and into the counterculture movement of the sixties and ended up essentially being the like the salesman, the front man for windowpane acid, right? Yep. LSD in the sixties. And was very well connected in the Bay Area and really was bringing LSD to the masses. Yes? Yeah. And he, he was very clear that he believed, like a lot of the boomers in that, in that world then, that LSD was going to transform the world. And he maintained that to his dying day, that mm -hmm. LSD opened a door for people in the West that allowed Eastern spirituality to come in. Yeah. And as part of that, he hit some hard times and you know, he found himself in a moment of just deep 
anguish and um, exploration, I suppose, and, and attempted kind of a ritual suicide by LSD, if I remember correctly, right? Do you mind telling this, this story, which I find to be a particularly vivid one? Yeah, well, this story was less about him being in a place of despair and more being in a place of deep curiosity. And he, he would have been, I guess, in his early 30s or so. Um, and what he decided to do was to sit down at a friend's house uh, in the Bay Area on the water and uh, to do about 110 hits of LSD at once. Um, mm. And it dissolves right in your mouth. And so he he'd set up a beautiful prayer rug and incense and uh, was sitting, he could do full lotus. He was very flexible. So sitting in a full lotus, he was an advanced yoga uh, practitioner. And he took the LSD and he put it in his mouth and he said he exploded. You know, there, he exploded into a supernova and then for eons, he was gone. There, there, was, there, was, there was just nothing. And the way he described it was for eons and eons and eons, there was just pure nothingness, except for what he described as this gossamer thread. And the knowing that was present knew somehow that if the gossamer thread was lost, that then it would just be emptiness. There, there would be no more potentiality. And so the awareness that was there just sort of was with this gossamer thread and all this emptiness. And after eons and eons and eons, um, slowly sensory data began to come back in. There was this sort of mixed up sense of what was where. And when he finally kind of came to, he, he said his face felt very strange and his body felt really strange. And he had actually fallen forward mm. and his tongue had come out. And so his tongue was stuck under the carpet. Um, and so he had to peel his tongue off and he'd been there for you know eight hours or something. So he had to pee and he had to figure out how to use his body. And through that experience of sort of extreme ego suicide or death, um, he got a really clear transmission, a, a voice that he heard in his head that said, go to India. Hmm. You know, he's got himself together and went to his brother, ha brother's house. He had his brother shave his head and he was on a plane to India the next day where he had a whole series of really crazy experiences. Hmm. Yeah. Wild. I mean, this is just... You know, this this is Junpo. He he definitely took things to the extreme. And I should say too, he yeah, he went from that LSD experience, he went down, borrowed his friend's Porsche, and then drove to his brother's house. So I would imagine that was quite an interesting drive at, you know, five or six in the morning when he was in that car. So right. Yeah. So so When the Buddha Needs Therapy is this most recent book. And you talk a bit about your own experiences with these like these flashes. Of mm -hmm. non ordinary states, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. a beautiful story of like walking your dog, and and mm -hmm. maybe you could tell this story of like you were young, you were a young buck, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. So th that was the that was my first sort of spiritual experience. I was sixteen and uh, walking my walking like the family dog. It was a beautiful fall night, really like billowy clouds and a really full moon, harvest moon. And I was a usual teenager. I was full of angst and self-doubt and, you know, running all kinds of stories, you know, about a girl and about this and just, you know, just in the tumult of being a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at the moon and it occurred to me intellectually that this was the same moon that every human who'd ever lived had looked at, that it, that it was essentially unchanged. And in an instant, I felt completely connected to all humans that had ever lived in all times. And 
deeply connected, like somatically heart connected, where I felt connected to Einstein and Shakespeare and, you know, Confucius and like all of these luminous minds suddenly were inside of me and I was inside of them. And it was, it was the antithesis of feeling lonely, which was sort of the, the emotion that would have defined my teenage years was loneliness. And it was, it just blew that apart. And, uh, and I burst out laughing because it was, uh, it was so extraordinarily mind-blowing to know on a somatic level that I was absolutely, it was impossible to ever be alone as a human being. Mm. Wow. And had you, at this point in your life, had you meditated, done yoga? Was there anything that kind of, when you look back, created nothing. the conditions? No, mm. nothing. No, I was really introspective, very, very, very curious about existence. I was very curious about my own existence, the fact that I was alive and conscious. Mm -hmm. And I lived in a culture, you know, in Philadelphia and, and my friends at the time where no one really, people looked at me like I was crazy when I would sort of marvel at the fact that we were alive and self-aware. So I, I mainly just felt alone. I felt like I was really like in this place all by myself of, of living in a place of, of just sheer wonderment at being alive. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that had something to do with the experience or what, but it was just karma or who knows. Yeah. And so in your book, you talk a bit about, you pull in kind of the Ken Wilber's integral theory around how to make sense of some of this, right? So there's this idea of a state of consciousness or a non-ordinary state, so an experience that is different than our kind of experience of like walking through the world, driving a car, making dinner, where things are a bit odd and different and cracked open, um, which is a little bit different than a stage of development, right? So Wilbur talks about states and stages. And um, you use this framing in your book. I'm wondering if you might just just help us understand a little bit like this thing that, you know, this, this you know, taking 110 hits of acid, looking at the moon and feeling throughout all of humanity, throughout all time, backwards and forwards. These are like state experiences, which is a little bit different than a stage of development, right? And can you just help us understand that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So state, you can think of, if you think of an egoic level of development, or let's say like an ego perspective, you could have like a tribal worldview. You could have a very conformist worldview. You could have like a modern worldview, scientific worldview. You could have a postmodern worldview. But these are all places where we inhabit when we look out at the world and how we make sense of the world. So if I'm tribalistic, maybe I'm like a mafioso. Uh, if I'm conformist, maybe I'm like a born-again Christian. Um, if I'm a modernist, maybe I'm like a scientist or a rationalist. If I'm a postmodernist, maybe I'm, I'm really good about social justice and equity and environmentalism. Those are all the stages of mm -hmm. ego development. And states happen, you could think of if, if, if stages are here, states happen over here, and you could think of them as happening kind of outside of the ego experience. So when I was 16, you know, wherever my development was, I had this experience. This experience was outside of ego. It was, therefore, it was a state experience. It sort of happened. And then when the experience faded, I had to interpret it through the lens of development where I was at the time. And so with Junpo, the same thing. Junpo did all this LSD. He had a radical non-dual, like a, like a radical non-dual experience. But then when the LSD wore off, he had to integrate the experience through where his development was at that time, at 32 or whatever he was. As we continue to evolve our, our stage, 
as the stage goes from tribal to conformist to modern to postmodern to integral to post-integral, uh, what a lot of the research begins to indicate, and what's been true in my personal experience, is that the capacity for your ego structure to perceive and hold some of these spiritual states as ego experiences begins to stabilize. So in other words, through a lot of my 20s and 30s, I had experiences of non-duality, really radical non-duality. But now that I'm you know, just turned 50, I can have experiences of non-duality, but I'm able to have that through my ego structure itself. So I can perceive the emptiness that's arising in all moments at all times without having to go into a state experience and then integrate that experience back over on the other side. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this, this is why practice is necessary, right? Like we can, we can always evoke a state experience, whether it's through breath work or- yeah. Psilocybin, ketamine, you know, deep meditation, uh, looking at the stars, being in the ocean, right? Lots of, lots of ways. Be falling in love, having a child, right? So many right. places we can have a state. Right. And that is not the same as living a life from a deeper place of insight, which requires kind of a constant examination of the ego and awareness, essentially, right? And, the, you know, in Zen, we have, there's this old adage in Zen that you write about, which is like back to the Zendo, mm -hmm. right? Like anytime, and maybe you could just, I mean, you just wrote about it so beautifully in the book. Can you describe the, the kind of thought behind it? Why it's, mm -hmm. why it's been both helpful and the mm -hmm. limitations of this idea of back to the Zendo? Yeah. So, you know, Zen, we're talking about a traditionalist conformist culture. Uh, there are rules, you follow the rules, you don't go outside of the rules. And Japanese Zen was beautiful in that structure. And the idea was that long before psychology was you know, basically invented in the West, the Japanese figured out that really life was relatively short and that if anything was coming up in your meditation practice or outside of your meditation practice, anywhere that you were struggling, the Roshi would always tell you, go back to the Zendo, sit with it longer, let it transform into a state experience. So you're struggling with anger, back to the Zendo. Sit until the anger dissolves and you gain some insight and perspective on it. Having trouble with your wife, go back to the Zendo, wait until it dissolves. And the, there's a real beauty in it because it teaches people to do a healthy version of what we would now call spiritual bypassing. So the idea being that I have a lot of stuff that's coming up, well, what do I do? I keep going back to the Zendo. I keep meditating to train my mind. So when reactivity comes up, I basically, rather than going into it, I use my mind training to go around it and to try to drop into a deeper causal or non-dual perspective that simply lets all of that fall away. And so that's beautiful. If everybody did that, the, the world would be, we would live in an amazing world. If everybody was able to bypass like that, you know, there wouldn't be war, there'd be very little conflict. Um, it's very, very, very powerful. And there's a reason that practice was around for centuries and centuries, because it works. Mm -hmm. The downside is that, you know, there's a couple things. We've evolved out of a traditionalist society. So there are some that argue that here in the modern world, we're far more prone to things like attachment disorders, and we have a lot more trauma in our ego structures because of the way that we're parented, because of the way a modernist capitalistic culture works. We're not raised by multiple generations. We don't have a mother who's with us through all of our childhood. And so our psyches 
in the West, especially, but really now, really most of the world, tend to be a little bit more neurotic. And the trouble with go back to the Zendo now is that you don't ever learn why you're getting triggered in the first place. You you don't ever gain the insight about, oh, every time Luke says this thing, I feel this intense like anger comes up and I can go around it. But how much better if I go into it and actually explore it and see, well, what is actually going on here? What's this really about for me? And maybe it goes back to my childhood and my father and an experience and something I've been holding on to unconsciously for my whole life. So that was sort of what Junpa was pointing us towards initially, was this idea of don't negate the tremendous wisdom of going back to the Zendo. But here in the 21st century, we have a whole new technology that's open to us that allows us to work on the relative ego through psychotherapy and trauma work and attachment work that allows us to have a much healthier relative sense of self so that we can let it go on, on, in the process of awakening. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, this is the idea that really in order to move into a state of no self, we have to first have a healthy self, right? There is a exactly that all of the kinks and the wounds and the the closures that happen inevitably through being human, um, through through trauma, through betrayal, through just being formed into a, a culture, those if left unaddressed manifest through shadow, but also limit our capacity to go deeper into a place of awareness. Yes? Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and so, and it, this is tricky, right? We need to be nuanced because we don't want to be wound worshipers mm-hmm. and believe that you have to do endless trauma work in order to awaken because that's not true either. So, you know, being human, we have, we have trauma from the birthing process, from, from being in the womb itself, maybe from past lives. Um, you know, just being born human is traumatic, even if we had a relatively secure upbringing. You'll never do enough trauma work to liberate yourself. And so that's something really important to keep in mind too, which is that this idea that, you know, we need to do enough trauma and attachment work to be self-aware enough to see the parts of our ego structures that are really neurotic and problematic because we can't awaken what we can't see. In the awakening process, as your mind becomes more and more free and as you become liberated from an attachment to self, what you can't do is become liberated from things that you can't see. So the unconscious structures of trauma and attachment will remain in place even when someone becomes highly realized, which is one way that we can understand some of the, the relative dysfunction and some really great spiritual teachers, You know, some yeah. of the sexual abuse, power stuff, money stuff. How do you explain it? Do you, do you say that well that teacher's not really awake? You know, it's like well, I've met a lot of these teachers, and that doesn't that doesn't really add up. But what you say is, oh, they're they're awake, but they're also human, and they haven't awoken their shadows because the shadow is still in shadow. So so the idea is we do enough trauma work so we can bring it into our egoic consciousness, so that then we can make that part of our practice, and so then as we begin to transcend the self, we can transcend that as well. Yes. And this is when the Buddha needs therapy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, Junpo used to maintain that you could awaken fully, that you could awaken completely, that, that you could essentially awaken beyond shadow. And he and I never really agreed on this because it was always the idea of, 
the problem of never having met anyone that's done that in, in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are highly realized teachers that can really, as I said before, let things go as they, as they come up, you know, they, they, they can catch, ah, that's a neurotic tick. Ah, there's some, there's some displaced anger, you know, and they can really let that go as it arises. But that's still a, a very sophisticated form of spiritual bypassing, in, in my opinion. Yeah, maybe this might be a good time for you to drop in this wonderful story Junpo used to tell or a teaching around me, me, me. Do you know this one? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, so he, you know, he had that beautiful, deep, resonant voice. And, uh, and he said to me once, he said, well, look, here's the deal. He said, normal people, their minds work like this. Me, 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 you, me, 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 you, me, 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 me. And then he said, and spiritual people, their minds work like this. Me, 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 you, me. And so it was a great joke that they had slowed down the reactive neurotic part of the ego, but they hadn't actually transformed anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. What a beautiful story. <laughs> One of his kind of most famous quotes that's out there is your angst is your liberation, right? And this mm-hmm. is kind of a similar concept here that, and maybe you could, I mean, you, you spent so much time with him. Uh, can you just unpack this phrase, which has been a really a guiding principle for me throughout my life? And yeah, just what can you share about this concept that our angst is our liberation. Yeah. So maybe I could just tell a story. It might, might be yeah, better. Yeah, of course. So we had been training together. I'd known him for a few months and, uh, and he was staying at a house here in Boulder and I went to visit him and he greeted me at the door and we went into a little meditation room, just the two of us. And we sat on Zafu's, you know, meditation cushions with a med- beautiful meditation bowl between us that you would ring with a mallet. We sat down and he said, let's just sit. And so we sat like nose to nose, right? Just making eye contact, really deep eye contact for about 45 minutes. And he just would hit the meditation bell every minute or two, right? For 45 minutes. Very intense to sit with a Zen Roshi staring him mm-hmm. in the eyeballs. <laughs> um, Especially one that's like, was, I don't know, 6'4", 6'6". Yeah, six, 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 you know. yeah, yeah 220. Okay, yeah, 220. Yeah, yeah. So... About 45 minutes into it, my mind goes completely quiet. And so I, 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 like, I get into a sort of radically non-dual state. There's no longer me and him. There's just there's one face. There's one Buddha. Uh, I'm looking at myself. And you know this, this huge opening happens. And he sees it right away. He sees. He, he's been waiting 45 minutes for me to drop. And he says... Can anyone make you angry? And that rolls through the emptiness, and then it sort of attaches onto my Keithness, and then my mind begins to turn, and I consider the question, can anyone make me angry? And I think, yeah. And I start telling a story about my then girlfriend, like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, it's like just last week, and I start to burr, 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 and the whole, my whole state experience, it collapses as I go into like the, the really neurotic version of my egoic self. And he's sitting there and he takes the mallet in his right hand and he smashes me across the face with it, right in the temple, knocks me sideways. 
very Zen of him, Zen master here. Yeah. And I, you know, I was raised in a, in a corporal Catholic environment. I had some abuse in my household. Um, I long ago, I'd become a highly accomplished martial artist. I was a tournament fighter. Um, I wasn't the kind of guy you wanted to, to fuck with back then at all. And so he hits me and this white hot rage comes up like this old man hit me in the face. Are you fucking kidding me? And so just all of this, you know, decades of trauma comes up. And I turn to him, really, really probably going to grab him by the throat and choke him unconscious. And when I finally look up and turn around, he's leaned in all the way in towards me. And he has tears in his eyes, the tears just standing in his eyes. And he says, brother, this is life and death. Get it. And I was like, oh, I can feel it. It was so profound because there was a transmission of what his central teaching was, which was that no one can make you angry. You always choose anger consciously or unconsciously. And that the path to liberation was to go towards that feeling of anger, of contraction, of victimhood, of the places where I feel most bound emotionally is the place where if I bring my awareness, I can find the deepest liberation. Your angst is your liberation. Go towards the pain, not away from the pain. That was the teaching. Hmm. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah, he had uh, such a way of delivering insight to the person and the moment in front of him. Each encounter was so specific to the to the individual or the you know the collective the the moment that was occurring, right? And um, while he did develop many kind of protocols and and structures and and was a really wonderful teacher in that way, gave created a lot of technology. The moments that I was always most touched by him was were these moments of like demanding some deeper part of me in a moment and and finding a way to reach me in a very specific way. I had this moment with him when I was in my mid twenties. I had launched um, an organization doing rites of passage for young adults, eighteen to thirty five. It was called Beyond the Machine, and it was basically like you know creating aware, conscious activists in the world, partnering them with mentors, doing deep emotional work and meditation contemplative practices. And he would come to these and kind of do his, you know, he would come, he'd come uh, be Yoda essentially for us. And um, I would stay with him at his house uh, for weeks and weeks at a time while we were out in Oregon. And um, I had, um, I was interested in a woman in, in, in Ashland, and I had uh, he, he had left for the weekend with his with his sweetie, and mm -hmm. I had this date uh, with this woman, and I went in. He had just the most amazing like wardrobe. He for for a minimalist, a Zen minimalist, he very much enjoyed the finer things of life, oh, including yeah. a kick ass wardrobe. So I was like, I'm going in to to Jumpo's closet. I raided his <laughs> closet, found this amazing like leather shirt. I was like, I was like. You know, I was looking good and I went out on the date and then I very carefully, the date ended very carefully, like returned the shirt to his closet. <laughs> you know, it was, everything had its place. And the next morning, um, we're, we're in practice 
And um, he was back. And, and the next morning at the end of practice, he presents me with the shirt <laughs> <laughs> and says, this is yours now. <laughs> I still have no idea how he knew I wore his shirt. <laughs> probably because he was very precise and probably wasn't in the exact right spot. He, yeah. he put two and two together. That's, that's a great story. But, you know, this was him. It was like he, <laughs> he was so willing to just give it all away. Sure. give anything away in a moment to liberate, to liberate. I mean, in it, you know, here I am fear. I wonder if he knows I'm going to wear a shirt, kind of like trying to take from him a little bit. And he just, he gives it to me. It was beautiful. That's great. I had, I had a guy mentor I was working with here uh, in Boulder, um, who was on the ROPA staff, the transpersonal psychology staff for a long time. And I was spending some time with him and he has this beautiful, beautiful uh, gold Buddha, probably a $2,000 Buddha statue. And I commented, I said, Depeche, that's a, that's a beautiful statue. And he turned to me and he, he said, Junpo gave that to me. And I said, he did? He said, yeah, about 20 years ago, I saw him talk and he had this Buddha. And I said, that is just an extraordinarily beautiful statue. And he said, take it. Mm-hmm. And Depeche said, no, 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 I, that, that's too generous. And he said, Junpo turned to him and said, never pass up an opportunity for generosity. Mm-hmm. And so I told that to Junpo, who was so blown away by it. And he said, he said, I said that. <laughs> he said, what did I give away? And he said, I have, I have no memory of that, but that's pretty good advice. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, so the title of this show is Crazy Wisdom. And we borrow this title from Chagyam Trumpa Rinpoche and the, the, in the Vajrayana Shambhala lineage. And um, these two, Met. Oh, yeah. Jimpo trained with him. Yeah. 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 You tell a story, or he tells a story in, in the book, The uh, Heart Blown Open, about yeah. their encounter. Would you mind for this crazy wisdom audience who has heard, uh, you know, heard a bit about Trumpa and this concept of crazy wisdom? I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing, sharing this story. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's sort of, Jimpo is very critical of crazy wisdom. And, and the mm-hmm. reason is because when he met Choigam Trumpka, he was, uh, he would have been in his mid-30s or so, and he was on the run from the DEA. So he had been busted manufacturing LSD a few years before. And he was living under an assumed name, a fake name with a fake birth certificate, a fake driver's license, um, and literally being hunted by the DEA and moving all over the place to try to avoid them, to avoid going to federal prison for 30 years. And so Junpo had had, because of LSD and because of his yoga and meditation practice, he had had a number of really powerful state experiences. And um, he was working in Boston with uh, Trumpka's organization. And Junpo was also a very talented chef, very talented cook. And so there was a retreat going on, and he was asked to be the, the, the head cook for the retreat. And he'd been training with Trumpka, I think, about like, for a few months at that point. So he said he prepared this fish in this Japanese style where it was this really elaborate thing where you toothpicks and you sort of, I don't understand it, but he had this whole elaborate preparation and it needed to be served warm. And so he prepares it and it's, he's supposed to be serving Trumpka and his attendance at, you know, say 8 p.m. Junpo knew better because he'd gotten to learn that Trumpka was never on time. So he waited until like 10 p.m. to prepare dinner. And then he said he walks up with this tray, this beautiful tray of food, and the attendant is standing in front of the door where Trumpka and his, his, uh, all of his assistants and senior students are in this back room. And the attendant just 
shakes his head. Nope. And he said, you can hear all this, you know, laughing and hell raising going on behind the doors. And so Junko goes back to the kitchen and he waits maybe a half hour. And he said, the fish collapses and the, the dinner's ruined. And he said, he walked back up to the door and he said to the attendant, you tell that Tibetan cocksucker, he can go fuck himself. And with that, the doors burst open and Trigam Trumpka is there and grabs him. And I think Junpo's assumed name was Charles at the time, but I can't remember. Charles, Charles, you know, bring us your fabulous food, you know. And he says, and he's drunk, Trump is drunk out of his mind, right? And, uh, and then he said, they're all smashed inside. So he goes and gets the dinner and he brings it in and, they, you know, they, they eat his dinner and they, you know, they, they flatter him with praise of how good everything is. And, um, Junpo left that dinner and he went back to where his room was and he packed all of his things and he left. And he, he never spoke to Trumpka ever again. And the reason was because he was raised in a violent alcoholic household that was full of chaos and violence. He had been part of the counterculture movement. He'd been part of the mafia. He was on the run. And what he said was his life was totally fucking crazy. And the last thing he needed was crazy wisdom. What he needed was deep, pervasive, stable sanity. Deep sanity. And so in his view, he said crazy wisdom is something for the suburban people. It's for the suburban moms and dads that need to get stuff shaken up. I don't need to get anything shaken up anymore. And so he then began corresponding with Edo Shimano Roshi the Daibosatsu uh, Monastery outside of New York, New York City in the Catskill Mountains. And that's what led him onto the Zen path, the path of deep austerity, of deep regular practice, and of anything extraordinary that happens to you on the Zen path. I mean, literally, if you were to levitate off your cushion with a Zen master, they would simply say, hmm, go back to the Zendo. Not impressed. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. The first time I sat with him in an eight-day session, absolutely still on top of Sonoma Mountain, under some redwoods, it overlooks the vineyards, not so far from my house here, actually. It's one of the reasons why I ended up here. But I, I remember I'm, I'm sitting, we're sitting kind of in uh, concentric circles, and Jumpo's kind of holding down, you know, just complete statuesque stillness. And the man next to me falls over with a loud bang, smashes his head, his glasses break, he's bleeding from his eyes. And I immediately turn to him to tend to him and see if he's okay. And I look up and there's no one has moved in the room. I'm the only person in the room who has moved. This was on like maybe day three of a retreat. And I helped the man kind of get him back up. And, and one of the assistants quietly comes over and hands him a, a tissue and then moves back and sits right back down. And the man sits back uh, upright. And we finish the session and we, come, we do a walking meditation. We come back in and Junpo says, we don't leave in Zen. We don't eject from our bodies. We keep coming back to here, to this place. And he, had, he knew what had happened, which is the man had 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 later in a check-in had said like i was having this experience where i was going to the cosmos i was i was in the stars i was in lifetimes and i left my body i fell forward and i hit forgot he had a body <laughs> right <laughs> and uh you know junpo somehow knew this is exactly what was happening here and 
the the man was fine he had a little cut and that was it and um it was it was beautiful it was a beautiful moment of teaching i mean it reminds me of a story the 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 retreat where i was ordained uh a couple of days into the retreat i had this really numinous experience of the solar plexus on fire and uh you know just was in this state of profound bliss and you know but a little disembodied bliss sort of like a very heart-centered but ethereal like it felt great it was like being really high in the best way and um and i really in my understanding of time i was like oh this is it this is what fully awakened mind is it's just this like this pervasive feel like fucking feels good man it's great you know and i <laughs> and i passed Drupal in the halls so like you know just passing and he pauses and he turns and looks at me and he grabs two fistfuls of my of my shirt and he literally shakes me back and forth you know so I'm like, <laughs> and uh and he says right here right fucking here Feet on the ground. Don't you go floating off into the stars on me. I need you right here. And it was like, you know, it was a beautiful Zen slap in the face, which is mm -hmm. you're waking through your body. Right? You, yeah. Like if your feet are on, on the ground, that's, that's not awakening. It's something else. It's a beautiful state, as we talked about earlier, um, but it's not integrated. That's not, that's not the place that you can be with your children and be with your partner and you know deal with the world in a way that's compassionate and intelligent and grounded and present. Yeah. So he was a fierce Zen master. He was a exploring psychonaut. He was uh, I I don't know a pirate of consciousness. He had this <laughs> energy of like uh, kind of Jack Sparrow and uh, <laughs> and um, he he was uh, so committed to not causing harm and not abusing, not acting out of anger. Although had his own shadows and his own shortcomings in that, and very publicly owned them. He had a wild life story, and you've captured it all in a heart blown open. Will we be seeing a movie version of this anytime soon? Well, I've had someone option the rights to the book, which means it's sort of bookmarked, you know, it's parked so that mm -hmm. no one else can buy it. Um, but we'll see. People have been sniffing around his story for, you know, the better part of a decade now. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it, I don't know if we're quite ready culturally to tell the story of awakening because it's, it, for one, I don't know how you would capture that book in film. So I'm not sure. I'm not because he's passed away now. So I'm the guardian of his story, and you know I would never sell the rights unless somebody convinced me that they were going to do the story justice. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's no doubt that Junpo's story is in very good hands. So as we begin to move this conversation to a close, I'm wondering if you could just distill down to the essence. What is the essence of when the Buddha needs therapy? Yeah, I, I think one of the real central tenets of, of when the Buddha needs therapy, and really what we've been dancing around sort of through this whole, this whole conversation, this great conversation, is I think most people, when they get onto a spiritual path, they're really, what they really want is to be liberated from life. That's actually what they want. They want to get away from this moment. They want to get away from themselves. Um, they want to get away from their pain and their suffering. And what Junpo taught and what when the Buddha needs therapy really drives home is that you can never awaken from life. No one has ever awoken from life. You can only awaken through life. And that means fully through life, 
all of your skandhas, all of your trauma, all of your neurotic tics, your family, you know, the environment, everything. You bring it all with you. You, you don't get around it. Getting around it is a false awakening. It's an escape. And it doesn't work. Mm, well said, my friend. So this is Keith Martin-Smith. If people want to find you, uh, they want to know more about what you're up to in the world, how do they find you? Uh, just keithmartinsmith.com. Wonderful. And we'll throw some links for your books in the show notes, your website. You're also doing some men's work. Is that right? I do. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do twice yearly men's work out here in Colorado. That's also, you can get information on that on my website. But uh, me and three other guys, uh, we do really, really deep weekend drops with men. Uh, really challenge the shit out of them. Really support the shit out of them. But really, really, really deep work. Yes. Go practice with Keith. Also, Keith does amazing job on copywriting. Just check mm -hmm. out lukeentrup.com if you want to see some <laughs> of his work. Thank you, my friend, for that. Yeah. yeah, pleasure. My brother, Keith Martin-Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Luke, it was great to see you, man. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Wisdom. If you like what you heard, please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen. This helps new people find the show. Maybe more importantly, it helps us grow our crazy wisdom community. My hope for you is between now and the next time you listen, that you try one new thing, one thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose, deeper meaning, a life of greater love. And maybe that one thing is a little different, a little odd, a little intense, perhaps even a little crazy. <laughs>